The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I tend to uh, start off softly and get louder as I go along. Unlike Gil, who starts out loudly and gets softer as he goes along. It's a challenge. (laughs) Okay. So... um, We've been talking for the last couple of weeks about impermanence. The first week, we talked about impermanence and loss. That's, that's usually what we think about when we think about impermanence, things ending, loss. The absence of something that was there that is no longer there. People, things, places. There's an, there's an absence. There's a sense of absence. And the next week we talked about the absence of predictability. That what impermanence means is that things are inconstant. And so when we form an idea about the future, we may be fooling ourselves <laughs> because we don't know what's going to happen next. Things keep changing. Our ideas keep changing, our views change, our bodies change, conditions change. And as conditions change, so does what happens in the world. And how can we predict what that might be? We talked about the fact that we very often make contracts based on the assumption that we know what's coming in the future. If I do this, then this is what will happen. If you do this, then this is what will happen. If we do this, then this is what will happen. No. No, it may be a good guess. There, there may be a, a tendency for something to happen, but we don't know what's going to happen. And that, that impermanence can be positive or negative from the point of view of I want it or I don't want it. If I have a toothache, I want it to end. If I'm having an absolutely wonderful time on the beach, I don't want it to end. We come face to face with the problem, the condition of unsatisfactoriness. Impermanence kind of leads us to that place where we realize I want something different than what is here. Not always, but sometimes. And that sometimes is the cause of suffering. We see ourselves, even in meditation, as not good enough. Oh, my meditation's not good enough. Oh, I should have done something different. That person wouldn't be angry with me if I hadn't done so and so. And... I, would, I shouldn't have gotten angry. We have a whole list of things that have to do with an idea we have of ourselves or the future that we want to realize, and it has to look just like this. It's that it has to look just like this part where we think we can predict the future that is a, a problem. We form ideals of good and bad, and then we cling to them. This is what's good. It's got to look like this. And we all know that under different conditions, it may be good, it may be bad. It may be skillful, it may be unskillful. 
But we as human beings have a tendency to want to hold things in place. You know, we don't, we don't like the, the idea of things not being where we can predict what they are. When we put experiences of our life into little boxes, it's got to be this size and this color and this shape, we are easily blown around by what are called the eight winds. Okay? The eight winds are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. And we place on them the burden of constancy. We favor the things, of course, that are pleasant to us, and we push away the things that are unpleasant. So, you know, praise feels really good. Blame doesn't feel so good, right? And yet one changes into the other so quickly we hardly notice it. But we react to it very strongly. Now, when somebody praises us, oh, that's good, you know, I'm doing it right. And that person likes me. When they say, you know, I really didn't like what you did. Oh, no, I've done something terribly wrong. We personalize just about everything that happens to us. When it may not be personal at all. You know, uh, my, my grandson calls me Nana. But his grandmother, who he calls Granny, was recently in town and now she's gone, and now he can't remember whether to call me Nana, Granny, or his nanny's name, Denise. <laughs> and he'll look at me and he'll go, and he'll wave his hand and, oh, I didn't mean that. You know, he almost never calls me Nana anymore, by the way, which I truly miss. <laughs> I don't personalize this. This isn't because he's got me confused with them, only that the name is hard to pull up sometimes. And all of these people are people he cares about, so what's to feel bad about, right? It's really hard to do that. Why doesn't he remember my name? That's the first thought that comes up, you know. My name, my name. Gain and loss. I have this, now I don't. How do we feel about that? Pleasure and pain. This is so good. And then we overeat, and we have a stomachache or we feel bad about our weight, or, you know, fill in the blanks. Today we're kings. Tomorrow someone slams us on Facebook. Our reputation is destroyed. I've had people who really loved working with me be told something bad by someone I worked with, and they'll never speak to me again. Weird. Happens all the time. Praise and blame, even the same act viewed by different people can be considered good or bad. My advocate may be your description of a hired gun. Just the tinge of difference there that makes it seem positive or not so positive, pleasant or unpleasant. We come to expect them to be a certain way. We really don't expect things to change. We don't. And they keep changing. So the way to keep from suffering is somehow to incorporate the fact that things are changing, that things are in fact impermanent. And to be so okay with impermanence that we surf along with it, that we can actually stay with it. 
that we can, we can so, so if we sit down on a pile of sand, the first feeling is kind of, okay, I got a support here. And then it, then it slowly or quickly slides out from under us, and we may find ourselves sliding to someplace we don't want to be, or hitting the ground hard, right? Because it's sand. We expect sand to do that. You get yourself all nestled in, you've got a nice support, you're feeling good, and the next thing you know, you've slumped down. And how did that happen? Because that sand is always moving. And we actually expect it to stay just the way it was when we got comfortable. (laughs) Sand dunes are, in fact, um, very interesting. They're they're highly mobile structures. And they're a source of great controversy historically and currently. You you have these massive structures of sand dunes out on the edges of the oceans, and they move a lot. They shift, they swirl, they move over large passages. They actually, they're like waves, the waves in the water. So that this grain of sand here may be up or it may be down. And when it's down, the dune may be behind it. And when it's up, it may be on the top of the dune. They move a lot. Well, okay. So, you know, along the edges of the, the beaches along the Bay Area, people have done a variety of things to kind of hold them in place. There's a lot of ice plant out at Point Reyes Seashore. And it's beautiful. And it pretty much holds the dunes in place. They kind of stay in place. However, the dunes aren't behaving like they're supposed to, and there's all kinds of weird things that happen on the beach as a consequence. You get big, big drop-offs that are unstable for people to walk on. It changes the natural plant vegetation. The birds and other animals don't get to eat what they want to eat. They fall away. It all changes. Okay, so, but where are you going to put the parking lot? People want to come to the beach. How are you going to protect the parking lot? Right? So there are these, these ways of things, seeing things that are moving all the time and our desire for them to not move quite so much. Let's not move them quite so much. The controversies often leave all parties bruised. <laughs> Nobody's happy in the end. So one of my favorite places to walk out at Point Reyes is Lemon Tour Spit. When it's about three and a half miles out to the end of the spit from the parking lot. I love it because the dunes are not held. There are some dunes right along that you cross over to get down to the beach, and those are held in place by beach grass that is invasive. This is bad. What are you going to do? They're there. It's pretty far from the parking lot, but as you walk out on the spit, all of that stuff goes away. And what I love is watching those dunes move. Every time you walk out there, the shape of the spit is different. Sometimes the beach is high. Sometimes the beach is very flat. Sometimes the dunes have been broken through. And you can see all of the impermanence of that landscape. And it's, it's delightful to me to see all of that happening, that it's not always the same. And the birds are not always the same, depending on the season and the storms, whether they're migrating through. I find it delightful. The people who have houses down on Stinson Beach may not find all this movement quite so delightful. 
you see they have walls built up to stop the sand, or they have their houses up on stilts so the sand can go through and the waves can go through and they don't have to try to stop that when there's a bad storm. Their relationship to those dunes is totally different. And yet, it's all just sand. And it moves, no matter what you do. So the perception of good or bad about the dunes has to do with what you want to do in the dunes or not in the dunes. It's not inherently one way or the other. The reason I'm talking about this is one of the things that happens to us when we lose sight of impermanence is we form ideas about how things are. And we make them absolute. This is what's true. It's a natural tendency. But they're not. They're not absolute. They're changing just like the sand. They're compromises. You know, we we build a house or buy a house or rent a house, move into a place with the expectation that it's going to be there tomorrow and for some time. And we make plans based on what we think the future is going to look like. And, you know, there was an earthquake yesterday over on the Hayward Fault. And, you know, those people close to there, some of them may remember the Oakland Fire not that long ago, and they lost everything overnight. That uncertainty, that unreliability of things that we think are really solid and permanent can be frightening. It can be frightening depending on the extent to which we're holding on to what we believe the future is going to look like. This is what is true. And as we live long enough, we find out some of the things we've accumulated aren't worth what we thought they were, or we don't know what to do with them, or our children move away, or someone we love dies. This is what happens. How does knowing about impermanence, understanding impermanence, make any difference? If we can't change it, what difference does it make? If we know everything is impermanent, does that mean we never plan on anything? That we never hope for prosperity? That we despair? No. No, because sometimes we count on change. (laughs) Thank goodness. Thank goodness. This is not always going to be the way it is. If we can accept every burst of the wind, praise and blame, gain and loss, and say, ah, yes, ah, yes, If we can be resilient in the midst of change, if we can find a space of equanimity in the midst of change, we're finding a way to not give in to suffering. It doesn't mean not to care. It's the opposite of caring. Very often, this clinging on to the future has to do with the way we see ourselves. This is who I am, and this is what will make me happy. 
we talk about my mind, my house, my car, my children, my peace of mind. And all of these things that we attach my to, we expect to be just the way they are, which is unchanging. This is what we expect. My mind is like this. My meditation is like this. My peace of mind is this. And when we hold rigidly to whatever those ideas of who we are can be, will be, might be, we're creating a condition where we are ignoring the fact of impermanence and we're creating the conditions, the conditions for suffering. This idea of self is something that we do, that we create with everything that, with all of our experiences. With experience. Even saying our experiences is making them somehow precious, making them somehow different. My experiences are different than your experiences. So, um, so how do we experience things? You know, I've, I've got this thing. I'm going, to use, I'm going to use this one. Okay, so in here I have this device. And I'm going to hold this device up, and you all recognize what this device is. It's a, a small thing, about two and a half inches by about maybe four or five inches. And it's kind of hard, and it makes a little sound when you knock against it. This, these are the physical things about this. This is the size of it. It's kind of has a different sound on that side than this side. They're pretty close. It has little knobs on it. And I can look at it. So that, that's, the, that's the physical reality of what it is, right? This, this, that's what this is. Something that can make noise. So the way I can hear it or see it, I can taste it, which I don't really want to do. Uh, those are the ways that we take in information about this thing. All right. Now, I can look at it and I can say that it's pleasing to me. It fits in my hand nicely. That's pleasant. Um, if I put it up against my face, that kind of, that's unpleasant. There are things I can do with this that make it pleasant or unpleasant that have nothing to do with what it is. Right? Now, uh, that's the feeling tone. Whether something is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And, you know, in terms of how I think about it, it has something to do with how I think about it more than just the physical thing here, my experience of it. So, so the other thing I can think about is uh, I, can, I, can, I can name it. My perception of this is that it's a smartphone, right? You would all call it a smartphone. Um, functionally... So, so naming it puts it in a category. I know what to do with it. I know how it's being used. I'm pretty sure I know a lot about it because it's a smartphone. However, functionally, what I think about it, well, it's a phone. But you know, the one thing I do the least of on this device is make telephone calls. I make very few telephone calls on this device, but I use it a lot for getting email and surfing the web, looking at the news. That I use it for a lot. Okay, so maybe I shouldn't call it a phone, even though everybody would call it a smartphone. I'm going to call it a computer. Okay, 
Now I know what a computer is. I have an idea of a computer. This is a computer. Okay, so this other thing I'm holding up, which looks a lot, which we call an iPad, doesn't look much like that, although they're kind of flat and rectangular, but we can call them both computers. And then if I had such a thing, this watch could have a computer in it, and that would be a computer. So now what is a computer? I can tell you it's nothing like the first computer I used, which was this gigantic box over in the corner, along with this giant terminal that I could interact with it. And you know, forget the whole concept of a mouse. These, these don't need mouses. These have touch screens. What's a touch screen? We deal in the world of perception all the time, where we name things and they have meaning for us. Not only that, you know, I've got a smartphone and an iPad. I'm really, you know, I'm plugged in, right? Now we have perceptions about us and who we are and how we can do things. And these are all just changing ideas. So I used to, I've been fascinated by high tech all my life. And I used to think I was, you know, I was on the cutting edge. I always got the first thing of everything. Well, I'll tell you, yesterday or two days ago, I just upgraded my Windows 8 to Windows 10, and I'm hoping to you know, get all my devices to talk to one another. I don't have the energy for high tech anymore. <laughs> I just don't want to do all that anymore. This vision I have of myself as being cutting edge just actually doesn't fit anymore. Just not true. So do I create meaning around the fact that that perception of myself has changed? Okay, so now this means I'm getting old. Oh dear, I'm losing my creativity. There are all kinds of ways I can go with thinking about having picked up this device we call a smartphone. Now when we talk about mindfulness, we know that our mind goes off on these kinds of things. What we're not realizing so often is how the experience of everything we look at, touch, taste, feel, smell, is being translated into this is who I am. This is what I need to be happy. That's the part that takes a lot of practice to see. That's the part where being in touch with how things are changing from one thing to another can really make a difference. I want you to think about something in your past, today, yesterday, three years ago, 10 years ago, that made you happy. Close your eyes, think about it. Something that made you happy. I expect to see smiles on everyone's face. Something that made you happy. Anything, something that made you, an experience that made you happy. Okay, now, do you feel happy now? I told you I expected to see smiles. Does that memory actually bring a smile to you? 
And can you really feel what you felt then? Really. All you can feel is what's happening now, whether this memory is pleasant or unpleasant, whether this memory brings a warmth to your chest or not. This is all you can feel. One of my earliest memories is of my mother taking me to the Billings, Montana Library. This library, which is no longer the Billings Library, it's now a historical building, was built like a castle. It had giant stones that looked like a castle. It had a turret. It had these deep steps going up. And I remembered walking up those steps with my mother when I first learned to read. This memory is always a pleasant memory for me. I had told my husband about it, and once when we were in Montana, he found a pen and ink drawing of the front of that building, and he bought it for me as a surprise. And we now have it hanging on the wall in our house, and I look at it. I have two sources of happiness about it. One was the memory I have of going up those stairs with my mother, and the second is that my husband thought so much of me that he actually tried to reinforce this pleasant memory. Now, when I think about it, uh, and I have this belief that my mother taking me to the library led to good reading habits and instilled in me this curiosity. And Okay, I have all of these ideas about this. And when I think back to that memory, all I have is a really short image of walking up those steps. And I know that my mother was holding my hand, but I can't see her. That's not in the image. My memory is actually so fragmented, all of the, all of the goodwill around that image is in my mind now. Who knows what I was thinking then? Who knows what the experience was, except there is an image, being with my mother, library. Even talking about it involves words and what we mean by the words we speak. So my mother died when I was 12. This memory is partly important to me because it's a way of holding on to someone I barely remember. This was a long time ago. There was loss of her, and some way of holding on to her is this memory I have of walking up those stairs. It isn't a source of pain for me because I've created a pleasant story around it. But it's impermanence, nevertheless. She's no longer here. And neither is that little girl who had that experience. I don't need the story about how it influenced my reading habits. <laughs> I don't need that story. The way to pay attention to impermanence is to notice what you notice. So what color are my eyes? Am I wearing glasses? What color are they? Do you know? 
We see people and we see only what we're looking for. How many colors of glass are over on the wall? You come in here all the time, you see that big wall of, of glass panes. How many colors are there? More than you think. <laughs> More than you remember. And when you pass by it, when you walk in, you see that light, but you don't necessarily notice it. You don't necessarily notice the colors. You, know, you probably all would have said, well, there's some colored windows over there. When you turn your head from the left to the right, you see some things and not other things. You mostly see patterns. We're not, we don't really pay attention to that. We don't notice how things change. And that not noticing how ch things change means that we're not really, we don't really know impermanence. We don't notice it. We're not paying attention to it. We expect it always to be the same. And sometimes we trip over the new thing in the rug as a consequence because, you know, it's going to be the same. We do that in our lives. Gil gave a talk a couple of days ago on thinking. And one of the things he said in it several times was how we think about things is more important than the thing itself. How we think about things is more important than the thing itself. Because an event happens, and then we build stories around it. We have ideas about it. Oh, I'm judging. I'm judging. Now, if you're judging, I may condemn your judging, but not nearly as much as I would condemn my judging. Because I have a story about how I'm doing something about it. Right? And so when a judgment a thought about judgment arises... The tendency to, put, to grab onto it and do something with that thought is very strong. I can't just see the thought arise and pass away. A thought comes along, there it is, and then it's gone. We often think about impermanence in terms of what's gone. How about seeing when it arises? When something first arises is part of that whole experience of impermanence. It arises, it's here, it's gone. That whole sequence is part of impermanence. It's not just something's gone that used to be here. When we can see something arise is when we can have a choice about what we do about it. If we can see a thought arise... If I can see judgment arise, I can say, oh, judgment, and leave it. I don't have to do something about it. I don't have to become something as a consequence. We have some choice about how we react in the next moment. If we don't have to be a certain way, we don't cling to an idea about what has to be true or ideas about what we think are true, 
suppose I have an idea about you. And here's my idea about you. Now you're always this idea about you. Even whether it's true or false doesn't matter if I only react to you this way. You no longer have a chance to be who you really are, in my mind, nor do you have a chance to be somebody else than what I think you are. We do that for ourselves. Oh, well, this is the way I am. Well, if this is the way I am and it's unchangeable, whoops, where did that come from? Then I don't get to be any other way. And when conditions change, how I am changes. When we are attached to what we think about something, this is a smartphone. It's a phone. So I don't think about email. I don't think of, you know, I don't use it for texting. I don't have a text plan. Some people see it as a text machine. How does that control what I do? how I see myself, how I communicate with the world. Under these conditions, this is what it is. Under those conditions, that's what it is. Under these conditions, this is how I am now. In the next moment, the conditions have changed, and so have I. Who I call myself does not have to determine what happens in the next moment. All things are arising out of conditions and pass away when conditions change. This will only have meaning for you if you see things arise and pass away. I'm not talking about the gross things of this was here and now it's not. I used to have all this money in my 401k and then it went away. <laughs> Painful. I was sure it was safe. Now it's gone. Okay. Does that mean I was a poor investor? Probably. <laughs> but it actually doesn't say anything about me. It was there and it was gone. This thought was here and it's gone. I was thinking about this as I was driving in this morning. And as I was driving along the road, I was following the road, and I was thinking about how nice it was that I knew the road so well. And then I saw this white cross over to the side, which was a memorial to someone, a motorcyclist who had died there. And I had been passing by when that accident had occurred. And it had already been cleaned up, but the highway patrol were there. So immediately my mind went off to thinking about this bicyclist, motorcyclist, who was not there. I don't know whether he was probably died since they had a memorial to him there. I don't know whether it was a him or a her. I just, I saw that and my mind was forming stories. And my mind was forming stories about, well, he was here, he's not here. I think I know the road, but I don't know the person coming around the corner. And I watched my mind go off into a place 
far away from I'm driving this road because I'm familiar with this road. The conditions all changed. I watched my mood change. Lots of things changed around that. And I had to consciously bring myself back to, Maria, you need to be driving this road. Remember how well you know this road? Back here. Not thinking about all of these other related thoughts. But during it all, I also was aware that I was thinking. I was thinking about thinking. I was watching myself think. And I was watching this variety of ideas coming up and going away. The process of watching that is watching impermanence as a process, not a thing. And when we see our lives that way, as a process and not a thing, there is less chance to become attached to this is the way it should be. And more, you're more available to see this is how it is. This is what's arising. This is what's coming up. Part of what's happening is we say, I'm thinking, this is my thought. What happens, what happens if you say, thinking, that thought, the thought? as opposed to my thought. Practice going through a day without using the word my or I. It's stunning. So one of the things that I have adopted as a practice, not always successful, but the practice is to not refer to my mind, but the mind. And I do that because I tend to be a very mental, directed person. So it's easy for me to identify with what I'm thinking. But if I refer to it as the mind, as opposed to my mind, I break just a little of that attachment. And it's easier to watch thoughts arise and pass away because they're not my thoughts. They're just thoughts. They're just thoughts. So, the other day, we had friends over overnight, and we were sitting outside having coffee, and we decided to go to the local place and get breakfast. We all grabbed our stuff, got in the car, drove off to have breakfast. And while we were there, my husband says, Let's go out to North Beach. And everybody says, great. We get in the car. We're driving out to North Beach. And I'm thinking, I'm not ready to go to the beach. I was okay to go to breakfast, but I don't have the right shoes on. I don't have the right clothes on. I don't have a hat. And we're going to the beach. And I'm thinking, this is not going to work. And then I say, oh, just let it go. We don't know what we're going to do. We get out there. And the shoes are really not beach shoes. I have to take them off as soon as we start going down on the beach. I have arthritic feet, and so walking on soft sand is really difficult. And I usually have beach shoes that I use so that my feet don't develop pain, right? And I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to walk on the sand. I'm watching all these thoughts, okay? here. Oh, this is going to be bad. Oh, this is going to be bad. And And I'll eat. Each one, I keep letting them go. Oh, well, we'll just... And I walk along, and I get a certain distance, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm feeling this in my feet. 
I'm going to have to stop now <laughs> before it gets bad, right? So we stopped, and we sat down, and the clothes that I didn't want to be sitting in the sand on, okay, fine, I'm sitting in the sand. So, so I was trying to meet everything with a, okay, this is the way it is. Okay, this is the way it is. And, you know, I didn't take my medication because I thought I'd take it when I got home. <laughs> and then we didn't go home. So I kept watching this recurrent thought coming up, this is not good. This is not good. And then I just say, I'm not going to let it spoil my day with our friends. I'm not going to let it spoil my day with our friends. So there was the thought arising and passing away. There was the, the anti-thought arising and passing away. So I got to watch this playing out all the time. And watching the ocean, which is always a source of great freedom for me, because it's, I get to see the sand moving, the ocean moving, everything unpredictable. And it was a reinforcement for watching things arising and passing away. With each wave that came in, I watched my head go up and down. The thoughts would go, the thoughts would rise over and over again. A thought of irritation came up and went away, up and away. It isn't about making these thoughts go away or changing the conditions. It's about accepting the conditions. We had a great time. My feet were a little sore the rest of the day. <laughs> I got to put them up. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, was, it wasn't perfect, but it was a great day. And the thoughts arose and, and went away. And I took my medication when I got home. It's really about resilience and equanimity. It's beating everything, okay, this is what's happening. You plan, you, you project, you, you think you're gonna take care of all the things that are gonna happen in the future, you really, you know, this is a wise thing to do. But you have to not be attached to the outcome. You have to allow things to just happen. when I feel like I'm really losing it, that I am beset by disappointment. I recognize disappointment as things are not the way I wanted them to be. I have a choice when I watch that thought come up of accepting things are not the way I wanted them to be or going off into irritation or thoughts about depression or thoughts about all the unsatisfactory ways that I can think about it and perceive it and assign meaning to it. My husband always knew we were going to the beach. He should have said something before we left. I could have had my hat, right? There are all kinds of ways you can think about it. Or just let go of those thoughts. And you let go of them by becoming disenchanted with the idea that it has to be a certain way. You become no longer enchanted by this is what it should look like. And you meet each moment fresh. This is what we would like. And the way to do that is to notice the change 
Get used to the change. Noticing change. Get used to noticing change so that you're not so wed to this is how it needs to be. In order to do that, it takes a certain amount of stillness. When things slow down a little, you can notice them. When it's all happening like a lot of popcorn, it's pretty hard to notice it. Although popcorn's a good thing to watch for impermanence. <laughs> because you can't predict where the, which, which kernel's going to pop, which way it's going to go. So finally, there's this. If all things are ephemeral and fleeting, I want to experience this moment as completely as I can, as, in, as totally engaged as I can, this moment. This moment where I'm sitting here and it's a little warm and my hip is hurting. I, I want to be right here with each of you in this moment because it will never come again, ever. This, this moment. And this moment. I've said this before. It's one of the things I like about Don. If you can be in a place where you watch Don, it becomes obvious. Oh, each moment is different. It changes so quickly. The light changes. And you go, oh, this moment, this moment, this moment. It's hard to put a lot of meaning on Don. You know, assign meaning and responsibility. So it's, it doesn't have all those hooks about my dawn. It's just dawn. And you can watch it change and say, this moment, this moment, this moment. This moment is free. So I'm going to read you a Mary Oliver poem, which appropriately enough comes from a book called Why I Wake Early. <laughs> So this poem is Snow Geese. Oh, to love what is lovely and will not last. What a task to ask of anything or anyone. Yet it is ours, and not by the century or the year, but by the hours. One fall day I heard above me and above the sting of the wind a sound I did not know and my look shot upward. It was a flock of snow geese winging it, faster than the ones we usually see, and being the color of snow, catching the sun. So they were, in part at least, golden. I held my breath as we do sometimes to stop time when something wonderful has touched us. As with a match, which is lit and bright, but does not hurt in the common way, but delightfully, as if delight were the most serious thing you ever felt. The geese flew on. I've never seen them again. Maybe I will someday, somewhere. Maybe I won't. It doesn't matter. What matters is that when I saw them, I saw them as through the veil secretly, joyfully, clearly. Oh, to love what is lovely and will not last. 
What a task to ask of anything or anyone. Yet it is ours, and not by the century or the year, but by the hours. One fall day I heard above me and above the sting of the wind a sound I did not know, and my look shot upward. It was a flock of snow geese winging it, faster than the ones we usually see, and being the color of snow, catching the sun. So they were, in part at least, golden. I held my breath, as we do sometimes, to stop time when something wonderful has touched us, as with a match which is lit and bright but does not hurt in the common way. But delightfully, as if delight were the most serious thing you ever felt. The geese flew on. I've never seen them again. Maybe I will someday, somewhere. Maybe I won't. It doesn't matter. What matters is that when I saw them, I saw them as through the veil, secretly, joyfully, clearly. May this be your experience of impermanence. May you meet the arising and passing away of all things with equanimity and balance. May you be happy. Thank you.